0: Good morning, Rocky Peak. Hey, great to see you today. My um, name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors here as well. And if it's your very first time, a special welcome, whether it's here uh, in our worship center, those of you on the patio, or those of you who are joining us on line and I know Joel just mentioned uh, to if you haven't done so already you're gonna reach out reach in and pull out your uh, green and white message note sheet we use it every week for those of you are aligned depending on which format whether you're going through our website or you're going through YouTube there'll be a link at either the top or the bottom the message note sheets and you can download them in your favorite uh, format but we're gonna jump in and get ready to go. Uh, and I wanted to mention just real quick I'm excited about this this whole water fast thing you know it's you know, I don't know if you know this, but over the years we've been doing this, we have now been able to build uh, 122 wells uh, around the world. And uh, we'll learn more about that, but this is a big deal for us. And uh, it's funny because me personally, I was, I, it's kind of crazy, but um, I. I didn't start drinking coffee till about three years ago. And so it's kind of late in life. And so it used to be I didn't mind this, I didn't mind this week. You know, it didn't really bother me. Now it kills me. It just kills me because I start every day with the Lord at Starbucks. And so it's like now drinking that ethos water, it just doesn't do anything for me. Um, and so that's probably the way it should be, right? A little bit of sacrifice as we, uh, we go together. But hey, I'm looking forward to this time of teaching. And so um, let's jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, so Father, we're here, we're just thankful to be in your house on this day and underneath your leadership, and Lord, we just think of, of what your word says, that where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And Lord, that's what we, we're looking for today. We want to come under your leadership, this amazing paradox, is as we surrender to you that we discover freedom. As we talk about the reality of the next life and what the resurrection of Jesus means for our lives today, we pray that the power of your spirit will be here with us or wherever we're watching. These words, like you said, would not just be words, but as you said, that the words that I speak to Your are spirits in their life. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, for those of you who are uh, regulars here, kind of a part of our church family, you know that I typically uh, kick off every message with a story that later we're going to weave in. But uh, this is baptism weekend, which means kind of shorter you know, shorter message. And so I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to jump in today. Uh, but for those of you who are brand new, we're, we're in the midst of a series. We've been in here for about a year. Uh, that's called Christ, Culture, and the Cross. And it's an in-depth study of one of the most important letters, I believe, for our time in the New Testament, which is the second part of our Bibles. And this series is an in-depth study of this letter uh, from one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. His name is Paul, or the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a group of Jesus followers that he actually led to the Lord with his team about three years ago. They live in this very important strategic Roman city in the south of Greece named Corinth. So we call this letter kind of 1 Corinthians, right? So last week here on Easter weekend, we jumped into the 15th chapter of this letter, where the topic on the table is the resurrection. And we're gonna continue it. It's a very long chapter. And so today we're gonna continue that study. So if your Bibles, if your Bibles, you have your let 's go ahead and open up to First Corinthians chapter fifteen and uh, turn to verse uh, twenty. this is where we left off. So if you were here last weekend, uh, let me set this up oh, that, that there were some, not all, but there were some members. Uh, the church of Corinth, who are kind of rising up and beginning to question one of the core teachings of Christianity, that at the end of time, there'll be a resurrection, a physical resurrection of the dead. And Paul challenged him and said, what are you thinking? uh, The core message of of Jesus, what we call the gospel, is is that Jesus died for our sins, and then he rose again physically on the third day. And so if if you're saying categorically there's no resurrection from the dead, that would mean that even Jesus didn't rise, and if Jesus didn't rise, then uh, we're still in our sins. The whole message is a sham. We might as well close up shop. The whole, house of, uh, uh, a Christ- the whole message of Christianity is like a house of cards that all falls because it all depends on the resurrection. And so, but of course, uh, Paul is going to go on to say, but the resurrection did happen, right? And because it happened, it has huge implications for our lives. And so today, we're going to begin to explore those implications, why the resurrection matters. Not just for Jesus, but why it matters for us. So there in verse 20, we're going to pick up the story. And uh, he says... uh, he says, but the reality is Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. And you remember last week, he laid out the historical eyewitness evidence for this. We talked about Easter for skeptics last week. He says, but the reality is Christ has been raised. It's something you just believe. It's based on eyewitness testimony. He so I've actually met Jesus in his resurrected body too. And, he says, um, and And he says, and so Christ indeed has been raised. And he's the what? What's the next word? the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or those who have died in Jesus, right? So uh, he uses this analogy of first fruits. So this would be a very common uh, term in the first century uh, agricultural culture. For us, not so much. But you know, the first fruits is just the first stage of a large harvest. And so it doesn't matter what you're harvesting, there are always some fruit or some wheat or some barley that comes becomes ripe before the rest. And so when you harvest it, it's called the first fruits. But of course, when you harvest the first fruits, you know it's just the first stage of a larger harvest that's coming. Like when, that first, when those first plums begin to ripen, you know that, hey, that means there's a lot more plums coming. And that's the point he's making. He says, the resurrection of Jesus is not just about Jesus, it's about all of us who belong to Jesus... Uh, he's just stage one of a greater resurrection that's coming because of his life and death and resurrection. And so he says that he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And, and now he explains why, kind of the epic story of the Bible the Bible is telling uh, of kind of why the resurrection of Jesus is so important. And he says, for since death came through a man, so he's referring back, right, to, to Genesis chapter 3, when this first couple, uh, the first man, Adam and Eve, uh, I don't know if you know this, but in Hebrew, the word Adam, Adam, means man, right? So when the first man, the first father of our race, he says that when, when, when they rebelled against God, and God had warned them, if you rebel, you will die. And it's gonna be death on every level. And so it's through that rebellion, through that sin that death entered into the world. And now he says something very powerful. He says, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. And this is very profound. What what Paul is saying is, if, if you were to ask the question, why did Jesus come? Last week, we got part of the answer. The reason he came was to die for our sins. But this week, we get the rest of the answer, that he died for our sins so that he would have the right to raise us from the dead. So catch this, the the penalty for sin or rebellion is death. And prior to Jesus, there was no way for God to raise us from the dead. We were all under the condemnation of death. That's the penalty. But when Jesus came... he died for our sins, which gave God the right then, since sin had been dealt with, to, to raise us from the dead. And catch this, because Jesus didn't have any sin, as the song says, death has no grip on him, that he could be raised from the dead because he had no sin. And so the message of Christianity is that when Jesus came to die for our sins, It was so that he would have the right to raise us from the dead, to receive new bodies that will be immortal, like his body. And so he goes on, and he says, for since death came through a man, then the resurrection of the dead also comes. Like, this is why God became man, that he would, as a man, then have died for us, that we would have the right to rise with him. He says, for as in Adam, we all die. As children of Adam, we all die. He said, so in Christ, for those of us who trust in Jesus, all of us will be made alive. But he says there's an order to this whole resurrection. He said, each in turn, Christ, remember, Christ means Messiah. He says, so, so the Messiah's first. He's like the head of this new race. He says, first it starts with Messiah. He's the first fruits. And he says, then when he comes at the end of time, uh, those who belong to him, we will be resurrected. And he says, then the end will come uh, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he is destroyed, and notice these words, all dominion, authority, and what? And power. So, So here's the thing. Uh, What the New Testament teaches is that when Jesus died, kind of came, came, he lived, he died, and he rose, that because of of his life, he was ascended and he was uh, in symbolic language, New Testament language, that he was seated at the right hand of God. And this is a fulfillment of a psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1, where, where God the Father says to the Messiah... Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies under your feet. And so so what Paul is saying is that Jesus is, he's reigning now. Jesus is Lord. That's what we mean. He's he's the highest authority in creation. But catch this, he's not yet begun to unleash all that power and to turn all wrongs to right. And that will happen when he returns. He'll return and he will judge the earth. And he will destroy all that's evil, and he will create, uh, turn all wrongs to right, and he will bring in what the Bible calls a new creation. Right? So that's going to happen when Jesus comes. And so he says, that at that time, he will destroy all dominion and authority and power. And he's not just talking about earthly dominion. He's talking, even more importantly, about the sat- satanic powers that rule over this world. And so he says in verse 24, then then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom. He's kind of conquered it all, and uh, he's destroyed all dominion and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he, this is talking about God, he has put everything under his feet. Uh, That's a quote from Psalm 8. And he says he has put everything under his feet. And now Paul wants to do a quick sidebar to make sure we understand how this works. So what the, what the Bible teaches is there's only one God, right? But that he exists eternally, forever, as three persons, distinct, Father, Son, and Spirit. And, and though they're all equally God, that there is a hierarchy, an order, kind of a leadership structure to the Godhead. And so the Father is the source of all leadership. And the Son, we see this when Jesus comes to earth, that the Son, his joy and deepest love is to please his Father. And so Paul says, hey, when I say that all things will be made subject to him, I'm not talking about God the Father, right? And that's what he just wants to clarify. And so he says in verse 27, in the middle, he says, now when it says everything has been put under him, it's clear that that doesn't include like God, the Father himself, who put everything under Christ, the Messiah. And so when, when he's done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, to the Father, who put everything underneath him so that God may be all in all. And now we come to just a brief uh, couple of verses or some of the strangest verses in the New Testament. So let me just give you some background. Uh, these verses are going to talk to about, about a very strange practice that we know literally nothing about. Paul is going to refers to some, he's going to call them those people, to some who are baptizing for the dead. So there, apparently there are some, my guess would be there are some in the kind of outliers in the church at Corinth that are baptizing people for the dead. Now, this is the only reference we have of this in the whole Bible. The Bible never says that we should do this or that this is a practice that we should kind of follow in our life. And even the way Paul talks about it, he's kind of distance himself. You'll see what I mean by this. But apparently there were some, my guess, in the church of Corinth that were doing this. And Paul's point is, hey, you guys aren't even consistent. On the one hand, you're saying that you're, there is no resurrection, and on the other hand, there's some of you who are like baptizing for the dead. Like, Why does that make any sense? If the dead aren't rise, why would you even do that? So he doesn't seem to be endorsing this as something that we should be doing. He's just referring it to some are doing and pointing out that inconsistency. Um, honestly, this passage is so perplexing that if you were to read like academic commentaries, there are more than 40 different theories as to who is doing this and why are they doing it. They just don't have enough information. But anyway, this is what he says. He says, um, now, verse 29, now, if there is no resurrection, that's the point, then what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Notice he says those. He doesn't say, why are we doing this? He says, why are those? Kind of um, distinguishing himself, apparently, uh, he said, if the dead aren't raised, then why are people baptized? That doesn't make any sense. Now he's going to ask us a second question that is very clear. He says, as for us, so Paul and his team, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? So if you know anything about the life of Paul, his life was constantly in danger. And uh, he's writing, remember this letter, he's writing from the city of Ephesus to the Christians at Corinth. And so he says... Um, I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. And let's take it to the bank. I'm not exaggerating. He said, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, um, and he's probably not talking about actually being in the arena. He's probably using it as a metaphor for people are trying to kill him. He said, "Uh, why would I do that for no more than human hopes? He says, what have I gained? He says, if the dead are not raised, if there's no future, physical future, he says, and he quotes from Isaiah 22, verse 13. Uh, this, these references I'm referring to, they're all in your note sheet. Uh, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He says, if there's no future, it just completely changes our approach to the present. In fact, this was a very famous saying of one of the, the groups of philosophers of Paul's day in Corinth that was one of the most popular group called the Epicureans. this is kind of their, they didn't believe in afterlife. And they said, well, you know, if this is all there is, let's let's kind of go for all the pleasure in this life. And then he he says, do not be misled, which is a really strong word. This is the same word back in chapter 6 where he said, do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Same word. He says, do not be misled or deceived. He said, bad company corrupts good character. Uh, Just a quick sidebar. You probably know this, but uh, if you don't, uh, one of the most important principles of life, you ready? We become like the people we hang with. Are you with me? Oftentimes, we don't don't recognize how important principle this is, but we become like the people we hang with. If you want to get close to Jesus, you want to live for him, you want your life to be transformed, hang with people who are close to Jesus. It will rub off. It will create a hunger in you. You'll say, what do I need to do? Lord, what do you want to do in my life, right? You want to become mediocre Christian, lukewarm Christian? Hang with lukewarm Christians. i will all be lukewarm together, right? You want to walk away from Jesus? Hang with people who are walking away with Jesus, right? We become like the people we hang with. And so Paul, he says, this is actually a quote from a famous Greek poet that they would have all been known named uh, Meander. And he says, bad company corrupts good care. He says, so come back to your senses. Like Corinthians, kind of wake up. Smell the roses. Remember who we are. He says, and stop sinning. He said, for there are some of you who are ignorant of God. Like, you don't know what you're talking about, uh, Christianity. but you don't know what you're talking about. He said, I say this to your shame. And with that, he brings... To the end this section, and next week he's gonna go on and tackle the next issue. Okay, well, if we're gonna have resurrection bodies like Jesus, what will those bodies be like? And so next week we'll come back and wrap up this chapter. But for today, I just want to highlight one key principle that flows out of this passage for our lives, and then come back and ask one quick question. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called Christ's culture in the cross, the key principles right in the sense so it's very simple but very powerful and it goes like this the easter is just the beginning easter is just the beginning So last week, we gathered to celebrate Easter. And if you were here, you're joining us online or whatever, something that, that Dre, Pastor Dre, said multiple times, something that I said multiple times is that if you're a follower of Jesus, the resurrection isn't something we celebrate just one day. It's something we celebrate every day. And, and this is why and that Paul wants us to understand that the resurrection of Jesus and just if you could just like really zoom in and pay attention right here the resurrection of Jesus is not just about Jesus so i think for many of us as followers of Jesus we 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 know he rose we believe he rose but we don't understand the implications why it matters and what Paul is doing today is spell, this is why it matters. So if you say, like, well, why is the resurrection important? We could say, well, first of all, it's, it's important because it vindicates and reveals who Jesus is, that he is who he claims. He really is the Son of God, and therefore we can trust him with our lives. We can trust him with our teaching. We can build our lives. And that's absolutely true, that the resurrection demonstrates reveals who Jesus is. But what we often miss is what the resurrection means for our lives. And this is Paul's whole point with the first fruits. The reason Jesus came and died and then rose was not just to be the ultimate miracle, to show these who he was. That was an epic moment in the human race. That the reason he came and died, catch us, was so that we could be resurrected and live forever in this new creation that's coming. Very physical creation, right? This new heavens, Bible calls it new heavens, new earth. And this is his point. There in your note sheet, 1 Corinthians 15, 21, he says, for since death came through a man, then the resurrection of the dead comes through. This is why he came. He didn't come just to die for our sins. He came to die for our sins so that he would have the right. There's no longer sin that we could be resurrected and we could re- become immortal. That we would receive bodies like his. And this is the great hope of the New Testament. You often read about this faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And this, the New Testament often talks about our hope and it's talking about this future that God has for us. It's not something like, like I hope it happens. It means no, this, is, this is what it's all about. This is, this is what we're looking forward to in our future. And the New Testament talks about this all the time. For example, one of my favorite passages is there in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says, uh, do you see it, our, our what is in heaven? Citizenship. Our citizenship. And in the Greek, the word is polituma. Okay. <clears throat> I'm not going to spend a lot of time. Polituma, it's where we get our word politics from. And what Paul is saying is that as followers of Jesus, this world is no longer our home. Uh, in the same way that, like, maybe you're an ambassador to Russia. And if you are, God bless you. You need some help right now. But, but like, let's say you're an ambassador to Russia. You live in Russia, but Russia is not your home. It's not your polituma. It's not your homeland. Like your citizenship, your identity, it's, it's in the USA. You're, you're there, but you're there for the purpose of your homeland. And Paul says, as followers of Jesus, who've died and risen with him, as symbolized in baptism as well, you've died to this world. You've risen. You, you're with Jesus now, and your true homeland is this world that's coming. And he said, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord, catch that language, Lord, top authority, the Lord Jesus, Messiah, who catches by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. You remember how Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that he must reign until all dominion and authority, until everything is under his control. That's what will happen when he comes back. So he says, by that power that enables him to bring everything under his control. That He will transform our lowly bodies, and I love it in the Greek. It's like our bodies of humiliation, so that they'll be like His glorious body. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is your future. That when He comes back, you're receiving a new body. I call it version 2.0, and it's and your new body is going to be immortal. you will never die. That body will never decay. It will never go bad. That it is immortal. It's like his body. This is what the resurrection of Jesus means. In fact, in one of Paul's letters to Timothy, he said it's through the resurrection of Jesus that God has brought light and immortality to light through the gospel. So what I want you to catch is the picture of the, the resurrection. Easter is not just about Jesus. Easter is just the beginning. It's why he came, to die for us so that we can rise with him when he returns and we can live forever with him. That's the message, right? That's why it matters. Now, if that's true, it leads to a very important question. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called Christ, culture, and the cross, one key question. Now, this is a simple question, but it's extremely profound. And so the question goes like this, are you living this life in light of the next life? Are you living this life in light of, or maybe to what extent are you living this life in light of the next life? And so this is the constant challenge that Jesus, the apostles give to us in the writings of the New Testament is that, hey, you died with Christ. And that's what we're symbolizing in baptism, right? You died with Christ. Uh, Your homeland is somewhere else. Uh, Keep your eye on the prize. And so live this life in light of the reality of the next life. One of the things I've said over the years many times, but I feel like it's been a while since I've said it, is that if you study the life and teaching of Jesus, most, much if not most of his teaching doesn't even make sense apart from the reality of the next life, that Jesus just lived with the reality of the next life. For him, it was like, hey, after high school, of course, you go to college or go to trade school. It's just like, like the next life is just what comes next. It's just so obvious. And since since this life is so short and the next life is so long, that if we don't live this life for the next life, it's like the height of foolishness. I think of one story that Jesus told in the the realm of our finances. And he said, hey, once upon a time, you know how you teach these little stories? Once upon a time, there was a man, he's a wealthy man, has his barns, He's uh, had his crops, his barns, it's just stuffed. He's got more than he could ever use, right? Uh, But but then he has a banner bumper crop here, and he goes, what am I going to do? I've got, my barns are full. I have no place to put all this stuff. And he says, I know what I'll do. I'll tear them down and build bigger barns. And Jesus says, God came to him that night and said, you fool, this very night, your life will be required of you. So who's going to get all that stuff you've stored up for yourself? Is was a way, way of Jesus talking about our finances and how we use our finances. Like, to what extent are we investing our finances in this life for what the payoff's going to be in the next life? But, but if you study the life and teaching, he did this all the time. It's like uh, it, this assumption of the next, it underlies all his teaching. There in your note sheet, I just gave one example, like third verse down there, or in Matthew 16, where he says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? I mean, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And of course, this is Paul's point today is it? If the, since the resurrection's real and since he's Jesus the first, since we're all going to be, it, it radically changes how we approach this life. And he gave a couple examples, but the, there in your note sheet, the first verse there, he said, Paul, Paul mentions, he said, Hey, if the dead aren't raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we'll die. If, 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 the, if the future's not real, if the resurrection's not real, it completely changes the way we approach the present. And then he goes on, uh, the first part of that verse, he says, Next one, he says, As for us, you know, as, as followers of Jesus, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Why would I do that if there's no next life? And the future's not coming. And one of the things you constantly see in the New Testament, it's almost every New Testament letter uh, assumes that the, the Christians are, being right, are under persecution, often very severe. And if you know your New Testament, you know this, that the constant challenge is that, hey, I know it's hard now, but keep your eye on the prize, and, and, and endure the persecution because this is what it means. You're on, you're on Team USA, you're on Team America, you're on Team Jesus, right? And you're going to win, right? One of the things I've mentioned to you over many times over the last five years, six years, is it, that in our culture, that, that the tides are changing. The cost of following Jesus is going up. And, and, and can I ask, hey, will you be willing to pay that price, your career, your job, your, will you pay it? To a large degree, it depends on how real the next life is for you. See, Jesus said, those who deny me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven and before the angels when I come. And so, so if you don't believe in the next life, then why would you be willing to pay a price in this life? You see, it affects everything. And so the question is, to what extent in your life are you living this life for the next life? And you say, well, what what would that look like? What are you talking about? Like, how how would that impact the way I live my life? Well, it's everything. Uh, It starts with our priorities, right? Our passions. What what are our priorities? How do we do relationships? What about our approach to sin and righteousness in our life? What about the core moral code of the New Testament? What about our sexual lives and identity? What about the way we approach sharing Christ with others? What about the way we raise our kids? I talked about this last night, and I've talked about this before, but as a parent, if, you have a, if you're a parent, what's your top priority for your children? They they would follow Jesus and live for him and please him? Or is it something else? I mentioned this last night, but I I believe one of the greatest gods of our culture today for parents, that one of the temples of worship that we bow down as a culture are youth sports. It sounds kind of ridiculous, but it's true. I don't always know the answer to this. There's not easy solutions to this. Every family's got to go before the Lord, and I want you to hear me clearly on that. He may call different families to different things, but can I tell you what I see? Here's what I see parents giving up church on the weekends because of their sports for their kids. I see kids not coming to youth group during high school because of youth sports. And you know what we're telling our kids? We're telling our kids, hey, following Jesus is important, but not as important as youth sports. And then we wonder when our kids grow up and go away to college and they lose all spiritual connection. And we wonder, like, what happened? Well, they did what you told them to do. You told them not with your words, but with your life. You know, your life always speaks louder than your words. You told them that the highest priority was to worship on the weekends at the temple of youth sports. You told them that your whole life. Oh, of course, with your words, you can. We can just follow Jesus and do that. We can follow Jesus and do that. And well, I know you can't be in a life group in high school, but because you've got this practice and so on, and we can't go to winter camp because of this. Do you understand? It's at winter camp. Lives get changed. Like, do you understand? There's being in that small group of community who love Jesus that changes students' lives. Do you understand that we become like the people we hang with? I, we could go on and on with practical examples. But, but what are the priorities of your life? Uh, let me just talk really frankly about your own personal walk with Jesus, right? You know me, and you know me like I, I shame is not my game. That when I'm teaching, my goal is to bring you into the presence of God and help you win. That's it. I want to say that clearly because I, this is not about shame, but I want to ask you something. One of the things we talk about here is if you want to grow, you want to follow Jesus, you need to embrace this model of the three-legged stool of spiritual growth. Like you need to be here on the weekends to hear the word and to worship with brothers and sisters. You need to be in some sort of small group of iron sharpening iron, people that, because you become like the people you hang with, Right? And you need then to one-on-one, you need to develop a regular rhythm of relationship, your one-on-one time with God. Because it's in that time of reading his word and processing your life and talking through your life and joining with him to partner with him in prayer for kingdom priorities. And it's that time you learn to hear his voice. And These things are non-negotiables. Can I tell you something? I can pretty much guarantee you, if you neglect the three-legged stool, I can almost guarantee you, you will not be living consistently for eternity. And the reason is not because you don't want to, but because you're too distracted. And you don't give God the time of day to teach you how to follow him. And so we say we love him. We say we want him. We say we want transformation. I say, if you say that, you show me where you're seeking God. Right? And so, what does this look like? I say, hey, that's a first step. That's a first step. You want you want to live this life for the for, then put those three in your life because those three will help create space where God can speak and tell you what the next step is. Amen. 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 So, it's, it's so it's so interesting. Hey, and so, hey, I, you say, I don't want to do that. I don't hate you. I love you. I, hey, but don't tell me that you want to live for eternity. And don't tell yourself. Because the reality is, as sure as we're sitting here today, each of us is going to go one-on-one with Jesus at the end of our lives. And there's not going to be a spouse there. There is not going to be a life group there. There's not going to be a pastor there. It's you and him. And he is going to evaluate your life and how you use your gifts and what your priorities were. And when he's there, he's going to play back the tape of this message and said, I told you. He's going to say, I told Michael to tell you. <laughs> and you know what some of you are going to do? You're going to say, that. well, this makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> and so here's what you're going to do. you can say, so I am just not going to go to this church. I, I'm going to stop going to church, or I'll catch it online when I feel like it, or I'll go to another church that's not so radical. And you know what Jesus is going to say to you? I sent Michael to tell you, and you didn't like what he heard, and so you ignored it and lived in denial. And so you don't get off the hook because what we know, we're accountable for. And when we say, I don't like the message, so I'll stop going, that doesn't get us off the hook. Actually, Jesus will say, In fact, not only did you not listen, you turned away and plugged your ears so you wouldn't be uncomfortable. So men and women, if you want to grow in Jesus, you want to live for eternity, start with a three-legged stool. Start there. Start there. I'll tell you, it will change your life. You don't know how to do it, that's okay. Give it your best shot. Talk to those who do. Email me, I'll help you. We'll figure this out together. I'll teach pursuing God again, whatever it takes. We'll do whatever it takes to help you find a way to have rhythm with God in your life. But I'm telling you, if you don't, kiss off eternity. Kiss Kiss off doing well. Because the fact is, you didn't care enough to give God the time of day. This is what Paul says. You say, you're making this up. I am not making this up. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. The Corinthians, guess what? They kissed it off. They did not listen. So Paul wrote him another letter a few years later, and he says, hey, men and women, we make it our goal to please him. He says, as followers of Jesus, he said, this, my team, we make it our goal. That's our top priority in life. And he said, and the reason we do this is we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that, th- that each of us, may receive what is due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. It's one-on-one time. And Paul says that's what the resurrection means. It means that we will live forever. And so live this life in light of that life, because this life is short and that life is long. And long means forever. Amen. Amen. Okay. Let's, let's pray together. So, Father, we come before you as a church, and I'm sure there's just a just a wide myriad of, of emotion in a place like this. Like for some of us, we're so affirmed in the way we're walking. For others of us, we know there's sin in our life. There is uh, misplaced priorities on, there's compromise in our life. We're not, we're not. We're like coming to church once a month. We're not in small group. We're not spending time with you. It's like you're sort of the afterthought. We call ourselves following, but followers, we're not following. We're more like our culture than like Christ. And so I think there's a wide gamut of emotion here. But Lord Jesus, we would ask you to come and just In your beautiful way, minister to those who need encouragement, speak encouragement. To those who need to be awakened, say, Awake, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And to those of us who need to be rebuked, like the church of Laodicea, you said, Those I love, I rebuke. I wish you were hot or cold, but you're neither. You're lukewarm, and so I'll spit you out of my mouth. And so you need to buy for me gold. You need to buy for me silver. You need to buy for me the white robes and put on your body the eye baths so your eyes can see. Behold, I stand at the door of your life, and I'm knocking, will you let me in or not? Oh, God, we pray we would not neglect these things. The reality of the next life is coming. We pray you'd speak to us according to our need as we worship you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.